Well, we are on the fifth, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, the last book of Moses, and uh, we we have found this a very interesting book so far. At least I have. It. Um, what does the word Deuteronomy mean? Second law. And when you hear that, you think, oh boy, you know, I know the Leviticus here. And it, it certainly has some things in it that would that do remind us of Leviticus, but it's a, it's a very different book, really. Um, this is, the book is mostly a series of speeches that Moses gave to the people when? Shortly before they were actually Yeah, just before they crossed the, the Jordan into the land. And why didn't Moses wait until after they crossed the Jordan to give them the speeches? <laughs> he wasn't going to be there. And he brought that up. He was pretty sad about that. Um, in, in these addresses, especially in these first few chapters, we really get the heart of Moses. What, what he cares about, what he's concerned about. Um, he loves God. He loves these people. And he's really uh, concerned for them. He's, he's quite concerned. Um, last week we did his first address, which covers the first four chapters, and we got into his second address. Um, there are um, there's three addresses, and then there's a few other stories at the very end of the book. <clears throat> Let's just do a quick review here of his first address. We're not going to... We've already finished it, but it's worth just looking at again. Um, uh, he reminded the people about how they had blown it the first time. <laughs> they're they're getting they're right on the verge of going in, but they messed up the first time. So he reviews that and then. Just two, in just two verses, he covers 38 years. And then he reviewed their journey. Um, and then they had conquered... The first two kings they conquered were Sihon, uh, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Both of these kings were on which side of the Jordan? The other side. The east. Yeah, the east side of the Jordan. That, that was not the side that God had promised the people. But these guys started the fight. They attacked Israel. So Israel returned the fight and, and conquered them. Uh, Joshua is then appointed to be the, um, the leader after Moses. He's not going to be a leader in the same way that Moses was. Moses could go right in and talk to God. Joshua is going to have to go to the high priest to learn what God wants him to do. Then we had more warnings, encouragements to obey God, and then after that speech, Moses appointed three cities of refuge on the east side of Jordan. How many will there be when they're all done? Six. There'll be six. So the other three, of course, will be on the west side of Jordan. <clears throat> and that brings us then to the second address, um, which is the longest address in the book. Most of the book... Um, is this one single address. Um, we have the Ten Commandments. This is the only the second time in the Bible 
uh, that the Ten Commandments are given. Uh, that was, of course, a review of them. And then uh, chapter 6 is addressed, uh, uh, deals with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, in chapter 7, he warns them to keep themselves from idols. That's going to keep coming up over and over. In fact, it comes up in the New Testament. And and I think it's I think it's a very appropriate topic for 21st century America. Um, 21st century Americans are also worshiping idols. They just don't look the same as they did back then. And then in chapter 8, uh, Moses reviewed how God had taken care of them in the wilderness and how he dealt with them and, and again encouraging them to obey God. That brings us up to where we are right now, which is chapter 9. Um, and this is a very interesting concern that, that Moses has. We've seen in, in, in last week's lesson, we saw he was concerned that after they got in the land, when they got rich, they would forget God. And, and we, we think about that and we think, yeah, that's pretty common. He was also concerned that when they got in the land, they might have some difficulties, trials, and they might and they might test God like they had done uh, in the wilderness, and we think, yep, that's another issue that to be be concerned about. Uh, he was also concerned about what's going to happen when you die and your children take over, and and what did he tell them to do to be, prepare for that? Yeah, teach the children. When the children ask, "Why are we keeping this feast?" Here's what you're supposed to tell them. And more than that, the the words of these this law has to be on your on your tongue all the time. In fact, write it on your doorposts, write it on your gates, <laughs> write it on your hands, <laughs> write it on your foreheads. It needs to be everywhere. <clears throat> and that is and and that concern that Moses had was a perfectly valid one because it's exactly what happened. The people did forget God well, on the next generation. Yeah, John. Uh, it's it sort of sad. God was concerned that these children would be told of, of that over and over again, God says, I brought you out of Egypt. Um, and the ones who actually experienced that, that first generation, uh, are failed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they knew it firsthand and yet yeah. failed. Yeah, and of course, this is the generation, this is the next generation after that. Although you may have noticed as you've been reading through that Moses would say things like, I'm not talking to your children. I'm talking about you people that actually saw God wipe out the Egyptians and all of this. And did these people actually see that that Moses was talking to? That first generation. No, no, the generation now. This is at the end of the forty years. Well, they saw the column leading the people. Okay. Did but he even mentions the plagues. He mentions crossing the Red Sea, and he says, you know, your eyes have seen this. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, did their eyes really see it? Were they the generation that saw that happen? Well, anybody who's over 40 years old at the time of his speech. Right. It was only the ones who were over 20 when the things happened that, got, that died in the wilderness. So you could have someone that was a teenager when they left Egypt. They would have seen all these things. And so when Moses says, you know, your eyes saw them, they would have said, yes, they sure did. <laughs> But now in, the, in chapter 9, Moses has a, a different concern. It's a very interesting one, in fact. Um, 
he he begins by warning them that in in the first couple of verses that when you cross the Jordan you're going to run into this these giants and you know the same the same ones that this the ten spies earlier were worried about and you're going to and God's going to subdue them before you he's going to drive them out and so then the concern is found in verse 4 what's the worry that Moses has well, they have to give, remember to give God the credit. That right. Yeah. Prideful. That. So now we have the concern of pride. We, we've seen concern about you know wealth, concerned about hardships, concerned about passing the torch to the next generation. Now we got the concern about pride. Don't say because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in. And so now he's going to spend quite a bit of time showing them that they weren't righteous. <laughs> Um, well, if he's not bringing them in because of their righteousness, why is he bringing them in? Okay, we do have the, the fact that God loves them, the fact that He promised their ancestors. There's another thing. Yeah, Brent. God is righteous. Exactly. He made a promise. He's going to keep that promise. <clears throat> And then there's another aspect that we don't usually think about. Um, but in verse 5, he gives, it, he gives it this other reason. Hey, Matthew. The other nations are with him. He's just using Israel to punish Right. Yeah. Um, it's not because of Israel's great righteousness, it's because these people need to be punished. They had become so rotten, God had predicted 400 years in advance that He could see where they were going and in 400 years they were going to be there and He was going to wipe them out. Wipe out every man, woman, and child of them because of their terrible abominations they were, they were committing in this land. And so that it wasn't Israel so, so, it was so great, it was these people need to be punished and God was going to use Israel. Um, of course, Moses wanted Israel to be a righteous people. But he reviews their history and they haven't done a good job of that so far. He starts with a story in starting in verse 8. Um, what do we call this story? It's of course found in Exodus. but The golden calf, yeah. And he goes through the golden calf for quite a while here, and um, how he had to go back up again the second time to get God to make the tablets over again because he he was so angry when they he saw what they were doing, and and he talks about how he had to really appeal to God for for mercy for these people because they, they deserved to be wiped out. Um, then in his review, he mentions in verse twenty-two, he says he mentions. Uh, Tabira, Massa, Kibroth, Atava. Each of those places, the, the people were, were punished for their rebellion against God. But then he goes into more detail in verse 23 um, at Kadesh Barnea. And what was the sin they committed at Kadesh Barnea? Fear of the big people, that's right. Yeah, that was supposed to be their embarkation point into the land. 
But instead, they sent the spies, and the spies talked him out of going in. Um, and so he talks about in verse 25 how he had to pray to God some more. Um, and begged him not to wipe these people out. Um, now actually, I think, I think the praying in verse 25 was after the, um, uh, the uh, golden calf incident. Moses kind of combining all these different things as examples of their um, uh, unrighteousness and unworthiness to consider themselves wow, we're so great, that's why we're conquering these people. But this, what Moses is worried about in this chapter is very common human behavior. And in the days of Jesus, the major problem he had to face with the Pharisees was exactly what Moses warned about in this chapter here. It was pride. They, they considered themselves righteous and all these good things were happening to them because of their righteousness. And it wasn't true in Moses' day and it wasn't true in Jesus' day. And it's not true in our day, even though it's, it's still a very serious danger that we, pride will, will take over our lives as well. So then in, in the next two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, more in, the, we've titled this as More Encouragements to Obey God. Um, he continues his story about how we're, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He continues his story about how um, you know he went back up to the on the mountain the second time and got the you know the Ten Commandments again. Um, and it's interesting. He kind of summarizes in verse 12. Um, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in His ways and love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Um, and he gives... This is very interesting, the, the argument he makes here about what God requires. Um, verse 14, what does God own? <laughs> he owns everything. And... If God owns everything, then what can I give Him that uh, would help God out? I'm supposed to keep all His commandments. I'm supposed to keep all His commandments. Does that help God out? And that that's the issue. I mean, if, if God owns everything, if God made everything and made you and me, then there isn't anything we can give back to Him that would put him in our debt at all. I mean, there's nothing we can give to him where he would say, I'm so glad you gave me that I was in, in need. I, I don't know what I would have done if it hadn't been for you. I mean, there's nothing we can do like that. And although God does require of us things, including giving things to God even, it's not because of any need he has. And when we've done it, it's not. it does not put him in debt to us. And Moses is, is emphasizing this point. Now, in the New Testament, the book that goes the most in detail in this subject is what? Our, it, we're, we're talking about how there's nothing we can do to put God into our debt. In the New Testament, there's a whole book that deals heavily with this one topic. 
Romans. Yeah, the book of Romans. That's right. Um, Paul emphasizes the fact that we're saved by grace, not by works. And if we were saved by works, Paul says, we will be putting God into our debt. And clearly that's never going to happen. Never has happened, never will happen. And Moses is discussing that same point way back in the book of Deuteronomy. So, if we have a God like that who doesn't have any needs of us, then we just need to be very careful and do the things He asks us to do. We shouldn't view it like Balaam viewed it. Like, you know, if I work things just right, then God will do what I want. That's, there's, there's none of that. You know, if I do things just right, God will do what I want. We need to do what God wants. And, and that's the point that Moses is making here. Um, so, chapter 11, you, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, and His commandments. Um, and this is the section where he talks about how you, know, you people have seen these, all these signs with, with your own eyes. Um, now, he, he compares where they came from with where they're going to. Now, where do they come from? From Egypt, yes. And so in, um, in verse 10, he, said, he tells something about Egypt which we hadn't had mentioned before, but if you think about it, we can understand it. And it was kind of a negative. And what was that? Um, he doesn't say flat. Well, it was flat. Yeah, you you have to water water your garden with your foot, he says. <laughs> Which you know, when you think about that, it seems like whoever waters their garden with their foot, you know, you all you just get the garden hose out and turn it on. And you, well, of course, they didn't have garden hoses, and they didn't have pressurized water, and I assume they had some kind of a machine that was worked with a treadmill of some sort. When he says water with their foot. Um, or you have to you know, go down to the river, get a bucket of water, and by foot you walk walk the water back, you know, the bucket back. Yeah. So somehow you're having to use your own physical uh, effort to water the the land. And um, but in contrast to that, the new land they're going to, what's it like? <laughs> yeah, and and also rain. <laughs> yeah, it rains. Um, I don't think it rained much at all in Egypt. I mean, the, the, the water they got was from the Nile River, and and it was, it came from the snows way upstream in the mountains. Uh, so um, now, I mean, they they of course, I mean, ultimately the water came from rain, just like everywhere else it does. But they didn't see the rain; they just the river came along, and they would divert it into canals, and they would you know get buckets of water and pour it on the garden. But it did have one occasion pale, it wasn't useful for agriculture. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure it rains some. In a, I don't know of any place in the world that it never rains, although I've heard of a place where it hasn't rained in two years. But, um, so this new place is, is going to be a, a place, I mean, you could say, this is watered by God. <laughs> It's, uh, so, and that's the point that Moses is trying to make that uh, the, this land is blessed by God it's, it's so much better than where you came from 
and, and he emphasizes the rain. And, and, and um, I think all of us who live in a, a reasonably rainy climate would agree that we wouldn't want to go to Egypt and <laughs> live in a desert and just have to <laughs> get water from the river. Um, but this has some consequences as well. And, and I, I find it very interesting. He ties in the consequences. Um, he, after, after going through verse 15 about how wonderful it is, how he's going to give you this rain, this grass, and all that for the cows, and beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so there'll be no rain. <laughs> the place is, is watered by the grace of God, but if you people turn away from him, he's going to turn his grace away, and you're, going to, you're not going to have any rain. And you may, you may remember a time later in their history when that's exactly what happened. There's a real famous story. Elijah. Yeah. Elijah told, told King Ahab, it's not going to rain until I give the word. And this was the fulfillment of what Moses was predicting here. Um, <clears throat> All right. So... Uh, then, then the next section of this address, <laughs> 12, chapter 12 is 26, various laws. <laughs> sort of cheated on our outline here, but um, we're, we're going to look at those, some of those laws here this morning. We're, going, we're supposed to go through verse chapter 19. Um, and for the most part, these are, are reviews, repeats of things we've had before. Um, in chapter 12, he he, initially, he warns them at the very beginning to make sure they wipe out all these people that they're they're going to go in and, and conquer the land. Be sure you tear down their their altars, their their idols, all of this. Um, and he he mentions that they those people of the land they had lots of places to worship their gods on every high place that have idols. And in verse 4, you shall not act like this towards the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes. What place is he talking about? Yeah, where the temple would be. And, and before that, the tabernacle. Yes. Uh, does anyone know where that place was when they first went into the land? I mean, after the first year or so. Where? Yeah, that was in Shechem. Uh, and then after Shechem, where, where was it? Yeah, eventually in Jerusalem, I think there there was also a stint at Shiloh. Um, so, um, yeah, ultimately he ended up in Jerusalem, and once it got to Jerusalem, it stayed there for the rest of the time. Uh, but wherever it was, there was going to be one place at a time, and everyone had to come there. They couldn't just go worship God anywhere they wanted. And so in verse 6, you should bring your burnt offering, sacrifice, tithes, all this. You have to bring them to this place, and there you worship God. In verse 8, you should not do at all what we are doing today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Um, so once they cross into Jordan, they've got a fixed place to worship and, they, and they've got to make sure they go there to worship. And in a later chapter, he's going to tell how often they have to come to that place. Um. <gasps> The rest of this chapter, we, we've had most of these commandments before when we did the book of Leviticus. Uh, 
Chapter 13. He warns about a prophet or a dreamer of dreams who gives a sign or a wonder of what happens. Does the sign or the wonder come to pass? It does. But he's still not a true prophet, is he? Because what's he want them to do? Yeah, and what do they need to do about that? Yeah, he's going to be put to death. Now, Moses doesn't go into detail about whether this is a real sign, a real miracle, or or just a deception. Um, my assumption is it's a deception. I I don't I don't I don't see any evidence anywhere in the Bible where God gives Satan or Satan's workers the the ability to work true signs, but. Um, there are plenty of times when people down through the ages have worked out various tricks to deceive people. And, and those, those priests of the idols back in those days had various tricks that they would, they would do uh, that we've re- we read about them today. Um, you may recall when Elijah said, you know, the God that sends fire, that's the true God. And apparently some of those priests back then had ways of faking a fire. They, they 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 had a way of designing their altar so that it would seem to spontaneously start a fire, and that would impress people. Uh, and of course, you remember that Elijah dumped water on his altar beforehand so that you know there wouldn't be any suspicion of, of tricks like that. Well, we had to be we have to be aware that given that people are going to do these tricks, we've also got to look at what are they teaching. And, and if they come along and start teaching the very opposite of, of what we know to be true, then we, we should not be diverted by these signs and things. And in addition to prophets like that, in verse 6, there could even be your own relatives that are trying to get you to worship some other god. What you should, you, should you do if you're just your own son or daughter? The same thing. We had to be very careful. I mean, remember what Jesus said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Well, that goes way back to this time. Um, What happens if there's a whole city that goes after this in Israel? Yeah, wipe out that whole city. So, uh, he he covers various ways that idolatry might be introduced. In every case, it, it has to be dealt with very severely. <clears throat> in chapter 14 then, um, he's continued to talk about the difference between these people and the people of the land that they're going into. And, and this matter of clean and unclean animals is one of these things. We, we talked about this at some length in the book of Leviticus. And, and I don't think there's anything new in this chapter about that. Just, just a reminder, you are the people of God. You've got to be whole. You've got to be separate. Don't eat these unclean animals. In chapter 15, there's a special year that he talks about. We have a certain term for this year. What is that term? Yeah, the, the sabbatical year. It, it comes about every how many years? Every seven years, yes. Um, and, and from the book of Leviticus, we know what were they not supposed to do during that year? Yeah, they didn't plant crops or, or harvest crops. The land got a rest. In this chapter, we learn one more thing that um, there's a remission of debts for this for this year. Um, some um, 
apparently there's a there's a question as to whether the Hebrew word here means the debt is completely canceled, whatever you owe, you don't owe anymore, or just that during that one year you don't have to make any payments on it. Uh, kind of like the main law where you they can't cut your electricity off in the wintertime if you, even though you don't pay. Um, but whichever it is, there is to be some special kind of mercy on people that have debts in this sabbatical year. Um, now there's another year that's not talked about in this chapter. It comes even less frequently than the sabbatical year. And what is that? The year of Jubilee. And in that year, what special thing happened? The slaves went free, yes. And you got your land back. If your land had been sold in the previous 50 years, you got it back. Um, in this chapter, we, we get another piece of information about slaves, which actually goes back to the book of Exodus. So it's, not, it's again, not, not a new law. But in verse 12, how, how many years does a Hebrew serve if he's sold into slavery? Six years. And then the seventh he goes free. That's not the same as a sabbatical year. Uh, it's whatever year he started with, you know, you count six years, the seventh year he goes free. And so in addition to that, if the, if the year of Jubilee would come before the end of the six years, we know from, from the book of Leviticus, he would go free in the year of Jubilee. Um, then in chapter 16, uh, we have a list of the, of the major feasts and by major feast, I mean feasts where every male was required to go to the tabernacle for the worship. Eventually, that was, of course, Jerusalem. How many feasts are there like that? Where the, the There were three feasts, that's right. Three feasts every year that the, the males would have to go to Jerusalem, eventually, we know Jerusalem, for the worship. Of course, I don't think Jerusalem is mentioned at all in the book of Deuteronomy. But... Um, Starting with the first month, what's the first of those feasts? The Passover, which immediately leads into another feast that yeah, feast of unleavened bread, and those are considered together here. Um, that's one of the three that you because of course you're not going to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover and then go back home the next day and then come back because <laughs> the next day is the beginning of your of the feast of unleavened bread. Um, so here we learn that the Passover itself must be sacrificed at the tabernacle. Um, now that wasn't, of course, the case in, in Egypt because they didn't have the tabernacle. They, each person sacrificed the Passover at their own house. But um, here you've had, you sacrifice it at the tabernacle. In Jesus' day, of course, it was at the temple. And in verse 5, you are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns. You have to, it has to be at the place the Lord established. Then the, the second of the three feasts takes place when? Seven weeks from the time you get, begin to put the sickle to the Yeah. Now, seven weeks from a little feast that isn't even mentioned in this chapter, which is the, um, the waving of the sheaf. It took place on the day after the Sabbath of, the, of that week, of the Passover week. So seven weeks after that, what is the name of this new feast? Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks. <laughs> also known as Pentecost. And also known as Feast of the Harvest. 
I don't know if that's here or not, but that's it's also known as that because it, it marked the end of the of the wheat and the barley harvests. Yes, they did. Um, the spring harvest, this is the spring harvest we're talking about, was the grain harvest. The fall harvest was the fruit harvest, especially the grapes. Um, and then the third feast start, is in verse 13. And what is that one? Feast of Booths, which is the, the one I'm sure the kids like the most because you got to live, you got to camp out for a week <laughs> for, that, for that feast. And, uh, and what? Eat a lot. Eat a lot. <laughs> um, well, of course, it was at the end of the harvest, and, and it is a feast, so, you know, what do you do at a feast? You, you feast. Uh, he did not mention the Day of Atonement, which takes place shortly before the Feast of Booths. And although there were a few days in between, and I don't know whether. Um, it appears to me that they weren't required. They weren't all required to be there for the Day of Atonement. My guess is that they normally were. I mean, you'd want to be there for that and just stay on for the Feast of Booths. But um, those are the three times that, that every Jewish male was required to, to come to the the place that God would put His His name. Um, all right. Um, Again, just going chapter seventeen is more laws. I don't know that they're in any particular order. Um, <coughs> he, in these early verses of the chapter, he again mentions people that are going serving idols and all that, and how they need to be they need to be put to death. And in this case, he adds an extra piece of information. How much evidence is required before you can put someone to death? Two or three. Yeah, you have to have at least two witnesses. And in fact, it says two or three. I, th- I think he's saying, well, it'd be better if it was three, but two, if you have to. Um, but you can't put them to death on the basis of, of one. If if there's one witness that saw it, no, and not two, you you don't have enough evidence. Um, and then in verse 7, when they do stone him to death, who's the one that leads off? Yeah, the witnesses. Boy, that would be a, that would make you think, wouldn't it? <laughs> wow. Then he talks about how some of these cases are going to be too difficult. You're going to have to bring them to the priest at the, uh, at the uh, tabernacle to decide. Of course, the priest was able to consult God directly, and of course, He also knew the um, the law. Um, then, at the end of the chapter, starting in verse fourteen, He covers an interesting thing that isn't. It's a. These are some commandments that are for the future. They're not going to need these commandments for a few hundred years, in fact. And what is, what are these commandments concerning? Selection of a king. Yeah. Now. Um, these people, of course, knew what a king was. I mean, Pharaoh was a king. They had killed Sihon, the king of, of uh, the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. They knew about kings. But they didn't have a king. Moses was not a king, and Joshua was not going to be king. But the, the chapter, this section talks about the time when they would want a king. And, and so he, he gives the commandments of the behavior of a king. And first of all, in verse 15... He has to be one of your own countrymen. You can't put a foreigner in as a king. 
Now, I think that would be a, one they'd find very easy to obey. Um, <clears throat> but the next section, verse 16, he shall not multiply what for himself? Horses. Now, why would a king want horses? Yeah, that's strictly for war. Um, Nor shall he cause his people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. And in verse 70, what else shall he not multiply? Wives. Wives, yeah. Um, Or else his heart will turn away. And also, in that verse, what else? Silver and gold. Yeah. Now you think about those three things that he just listed. Those are the things that kings of the earth have almost invariably done down through the ages. <clears throat> kings love to have big armies, and and the bigger the army, the bigger their pride, and the more they want to beat up on nations around them. Kings like to indulge the lust of the flesh, and the multiple wives rep- certainly represents lust of the flesh, and. Kings like to have lots of money. Gold. <laughs> um, and one commentator I was reading made the observation that to the extent that a king in any, any age, to the extent that a king has obeyed these warnings, to that extent he's been a successful king. Um, I mean, and you can look in history and you can find some kings that were more they're more careful in these areas. I'm not just talking about in the Bible. I'm just talking about in history in general. You can find some who are more careful. And to the extent that they have been careful in those areas, they've been, they've been a better king. But interestingly enough, there is one king who is perfect in those three areas. Jesus, Jesus came and he, did, he obeyed these perfectly. Not only did he not multiply horses, he never had a single horse. Nor did he ever resort to armed conflict to further his kingdom. He didn't. He not only did he not multiply wives; he had no wives except the one wife, which he is to marry the church. That's right. And silver and gold. How much silver and gold did he have? Nothing. No. When he, when it was time to pay taxes, he had to get Peter to go. Find a coin in a fish's mouth to pay the the um, the taxes. So, even though Moses is not saying, you know, I'm predicting this great king, he was laying down the qualifications that only Jesus fulfilled. Only Jesus fulfilled. Uh, the 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 two greatest kings that you can think about in the Old Testament were David and Solomon, and neither of them obeyed these commandments. Solomon. You know, did worse than David did, but they both had problems in this area. Yeah. Uh, of course, the, the people, the common people, uh, sort of uh, uh, celebrated the, the the king that glorified himself. So. Right. They had the same attitude. That's right. Yeah. Jesus yeah. was the perfect king, and, uh, and they didn't like it. They they wanted a king who was doing the things that Jesus said not, or that Moses said not to do. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And then in the, in the end of the chapter, he, he says this king has to do one thing when he becomes king. And what is that? He's got to make a copy of the law so he'll always have a copy of this law in front of him. Um, 
And of course, Jesus, He fulfilled that. I mean, Jesus was constantly quoting the law. Alright, that's chapter 70. Chapter 18, uh, the beginning part talks about uh, some commandments concerning Levites. Um, Levites were the ones who served at the tabernacle. Um, And starting in verse 9, more warnings about what the people of the land before them were doing. In this case, um, there were um, people who who were casting spells, mediums, spiritists, uh, people who call up the dead. Things that, I mean, again, this this kind of stuff is still practiced today. Even in our country, um, and he says, whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. Um, in verse 15, he says, the Lord will raise up, raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. Now this is in contrast to the practices of these of the people of the land. These people that are consulting the dead, they're practicing spiritism, all that. The one that God's going to raise up, the prophet, he's going to, in verse 18, God will put his words in his mouth and he'll speak what God commands. Completely different behavior from basically the witch doctors that, that, that they were being warned about. Instead of someone that, that knows how to search, seek signs and, and, and figure out mysterious things, this guy simply tells you what God said to say. That's all he does. He just tells you. He's, he doesn't have any power. He's not putting spells on people. He is just a spokesman for God. And the ultimate fulfillment of that is who? Yeah, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Now, this, this is not simply a prophecy of Jesus. This is a prophecy of all the prophets. But Jesus is the prophet to end all prophets. He was the, the fulfillment, the one who spoke the words of God. And He warns, of course, about the prophet that would speak presumptuously and claim he's getting it from God. And there was plenty of those. Yeah, Philip. I think it's interesting the way he introduces it by talking about on Mount Sinai when they heard the voice of God and they were scared. And, and, they, and they asked... Don't, don't, don't have God speak to us this way anymore. And so Moses is saying, well, we're going to do it a different way. God's going to reveal Himself in a different way. Yeah. And you didn't want to hear God Himself speaking, but you're still going to hear God speaking. It's just going to be a little different. Through, through a voice of a man that is a prophet. Yes. And the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus came... God in the flesh, but he wasn't like he didn't scare people like God shouting from Mount Sinai. Um, little children would come up to him and not be afraid. Um, he was the ultimate fulfillment of of their request. Don't let us hear the voice of God. You you speak to us. Yeah. All right. Um, in chapter nineteen. Um, he reviews the cities of refuge. We talked about that last time. I won't go into that again. And then in chapter 20, he talks about some rules for warfare. And the rules they have are, are unusual. Um, they, they don't... I don't know of any army today that follows these rules. <laughs> um, 
Of course, we have to understand that the, the armies they the army they're talking about here is not a professional standing army. God, God never God never had intended His people to have a professional standing army. They they. Every citizen was a soldier, but they were just called out in time of war. Other than that, they, they went about their work. And so here you call the whole country out. Time to go to war. We got, we're getting attacked. And the first thing you have to do is you have to find out if there's some people that you should send back. And what kind of reasons might you have for sending someone back? Just married. Just married. You don't want... I mean, he, he's, he's just married. He, he doesn't have any children yet. Um, send him back. You know, it'd be terrible if he died childless. Um, what else? Just build a new house. Build a new house. Hasn't had a chance to use the house. I mean, the, pretty unusual things. I can't imagine uh, in the army today let let a guy go home just because he built a house. <laughs> in the Vietnam War, you had a lot of houses going up. If that would have worked. <laughs> um, and then in verse eight, very unusual. What's this one? Don't want to go. Who's the one that's afraid? Um, he needs to go back because we don't want to make other people afraid. This, you know, fear is contagious, and we only need people. We only want soldiers that are courageous, who believe that God is going to give us the victory. We don't want people that that have a lack of faith and are going to cause harm. Can you think of any story later on in the Bible where they actually did what they said to do here? Yeah, it was Gideon. Yeah, who who's afraid? <laughs> Huge number of people all went back. <laughs> Not yeah, and <clears throat> we'll get to that, of course. Some, uh, and then he talks about some of the laws about uh, siege warfare, which. It's pretty obvious. I'm not going to go into those details. We'll we'll have to stop here. Next week we'll start with chapter 21, and. Um, We'll go another ten chapters or so. We're not going to finish the book next week, but the week after we will. So, more miscellaneous laws. <laughs> All right, I appreciate everyone's help this morning.